you have people that are basically keeping billions under their mattresses or what they do, they buy cattle. So he wants to sit in his house and say, oh, I have 2,000 pigs. So this is my fortune. Wow. So people are people are not putting their money in a bank. They're they're buying pigs and and, yes. and cows and things like yes. that as yeah. at store of value. Do you think that this makes it easier to explain the value of something like Bitcoin to these folks? Let's imagine you buy a cow when it's like uh, 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 six months old, right? And you assign a token to this cow. How do we make this transition easier so that people go from cow to digital token and from digital token to Bitcoin? You're listening to another episode of Empire. I'm Jason Yenowitz, and today I sat down with Nelly Shatwe Diop, the CEO of Ijara. The first half of this episode, we went really deep on just what's happening in Central and Western Africa, the economic state of the area. And then in the second half, we talked about Nelly's journey going from a small city in Cameroon as a teenager to going out to Europe and then coming back to Cameroon to build uh, what she thinks is going to change the lives of, of millions of individuals in Africa. So hope you enjoyed this episode. If you haven't done so yet, uh, subscribe on Apple, subscribe on YouTube, subscribe on uh, really wherever you get your podcasts. So, all right, see you on the other side. Hope you enjoy the episode. This episode is brought to you by Luca Tax and Exodus. Stay tuned for more info. Nelly, I am so excited to have you on the show. I uh, I reached out to a few folks, uh, Koki and uh, and Meltem and and several others, and you are the most requested guest that we have had so far. So welcome to Empire. Wow. Oh, thank you for saying that. And thank you to them. I'm so happy to talk to you today, Jason, and to your audience, obviously. Yeah, of course. How's uh, how's life in? So where, where are you? Where are you right now? Oh, so I'm currently based in Cameroon, which is like a country based in, in Central Africa. And it's very hot out there. So, yeah. Very hot. Okay. How, how hot are we talking? Oh, between 40 and 42 degrees. So we are really looking forward for the rainy season that is supposed to happen anytime soon. So we are kind of sick of the dry season already. Yeah, yeah. Do you live in the city in Cameroon? Yes, uh, uh, I live in uh, in Douala, which is the economic capital uh, of Cameroon. So it's like really the business city, and uh, and we have uh, the the port. So yes, I mean, yeah, it's a big city. I think the second largest city in Cameroon. Amazing. Very cool. So Nelly, we are going to have a lot of fun this episode. We're going to talk all about Ijara. We're going to talk about your story. You were a chief data officer in France at a, at a large gambling yes. company. And we're going to we're going to get into all that. But I think it'd be really helpful to start this. Actually, uh, a lot of our audience is based in um, the UK and in the United mm -hmm. States and in Canada um, and just in North America in general. And I think it'd be really helpful to give a primer on what's happening in uh, just Central Africa and in Cameroon right now and in West Africa, more at a political and economics level. And then we can start to dive deeper into crypto and then eventually we'll talk about your story with Ijara. Sure. So you have this uh, older generation that has been in the power since the independence in 1960s. And it has been like very few turnovers. Like for example, in Cameroon, we have 
only live uh, under one president. <laughs> so like for the past, like almost 40 years, I've known only one president in my country. And, uh, wow. and the, the same can apply to almost uh, all the countries across the, this area. So and when the young generation comes in, like people my age are even younger, uh, and they see that economically we haven't really uh, leapfrogs that we would expect. Uh, things are still stagnating and, and they are also more uh, um, open to what is happening elsewhere because now with internet and the spread of information, we can compare our living standards with what is outside of Africa. So that means that people aspire to much more than maybe their parents and grandparents before. So that's kind of what's happening. Uh, obviously, and uh, fortunately, it doesn't result yet into uh, uh, like large wars or like what we used to to, to see. But uh, I think that it's also very promising for the future that uh, the young generation is taking is taking matter in hands and they are uh, acting. They are asking for what they think they, they deserve. Hmm. You mentioned Senegal. Yes. I, I was reading Senegal just blocked access to social media and to yes. messaging apps. Why? Mm -hmm. So what, what's going on here? Why does the government block access to social media? So basically in Senegal, the president has been in power for the past nine years. And uh, next year, it's supposed to be an election. And he's really worried that he won't get reelected. So he decided conveniently to put in prison, in jail, his principal opponent. And I think that was the last row for the young generation because due to also COVID, people are having really hard times. You know, like Senegal is not as it as, uh, as United States, for example, or the UK or France. And it's the same in Sub-Saharan Africa. We are basically not that it by COVID. And Despite that, uh, Senegalese president implemented some kind of curfews and a lockdown, and people feel like it's overreacting. It's just like copying and pasting what has been implemented in France, you know, like uh, 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 the, the, the old uh, colonialist uh, empire. And, uh, and people feel like, okay, it, it's adding up to their struggles, it, I, and it's uh, making them poorer. So having this uh, uh, opponent in jail, people just lost it. And, uh, and that's why, uh, because they were uh, afraid of the spreading of how uh, the, the, the content was spreading the block internet. And I think this is the playbook that every single president in Western Central Africa has used. And that's why I already registered for Starlink. I'm really hopeful of what Elon Musk is trying to, to achieve and, 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 and really, really hope that, you know, it will be the start of uh, 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 countries or governments not being able to kind of confiscate uh, the, the, the power of people to access free information, uh, uh, to deny them the freedom to, to kind of get, you know, their voices out there. This is a this is a crazy playbook. So the playbook that you're yeah. saying that is run is the president who's been in power, you said in, in uh, I think it was Senegal, was 40 years. Yes, right? nine years. Yes. Nine years. Okay. And Cameroon yes, is 40 exactly. years. It's 40 uh, years. Exactly. Yeah. They will, if they have an opponent who they think they're going to lose to, they will literally yeah. put them in jail. Right. And so what happened yeah. in Senegal is the, is the young yeah. people who are frustrated took to the streets and they start posting on social media. The Senegal exactly. president, uh, 
banned social media, and and now you started talking at the end about Starlink and free information. But how does like when we read in the news that they blocked access to social media, how do you block access to social media? Are they shutting down? Oh, basically, it's ISPs. It's ISPs. I think you know you have like few ISPs, and they they they, they just you know. Uh, go to see them and tell them if you ever want to stay in Senegal at some point again, you should just block access to those uh, websites. And it's basically all the social media uh, companies and websites. So that's that's how they do it. Even in, in Cameroon, we have like a small civil war, a small, no, I shouldn't say a small, it's like actually huge because it has been going on since 2000. 18 uh, going on in the southwest and uh, northwest of Cameroon that were the anglophone regions because Cameroon was colonized by France and by the UK so this part of Cameroon feels like they they have been undermined consistently since that uh, Cameroon became only uh, one country and when they try to push the government to do better by them uh, the response was uh, uh, dropping the army people on them and killing the uh, killing the people like raping the wives. I mean, it was like a butcher, and uh, and the government just just also cuts the internet. And uh, yeah, I mean that's that's the playbook. Wow, that's crazy. So they go to the the large ISPs and they shut and they say. So what are the big what are the big social media? tools there like Facebook and, and WhatsApp and oh yeah uh, Facebook uh, uh, WhatsApp uh, uh, Twitter because uh, uh, Twitter there was this talk like free Senegal you know and it echoed to the previous talk that we had in Nigeria I think three months ago and SARS when the, the young people also took to the streets to uh, to, um, to manifest against like the, the police that were abusive so yeah, Twitter, Facebook, uh, even YouTube. I mean, because YouTube videos, like because for videos people are posting like the real video feed that they can uh, they can record on the street. So it contradicts the uh, the message that the government wants to put out there across the international community and say, oh, everything is under peacefully, don't worry, we are not uh, uh, firing with real bullets on our own people. And when you see uh, YouTube videos uh, showing basically the contrary, it's kind of messy. So that's also why they block uh, uh, social, uh, social media companies. So, the, but people must know what's like does anybody support the government or or there's no real support people must know what's happening right yeah but you know like it's it's complicated i think uh we shouldn't when we talk about africa and i we feel like everybody is as informed as us. Everybody has access to internet and everything. Even those young people are getting on the streets, I can I can bet you that maybe only one tenth know why they are on the streets, like the real cause. You know, like for most of them, they just see they just saw people on the street and they saw like, okay, there's a movement going on. I'm poor. I'm sick of it. Let's just manifest because access to internet, access to data is still very expensive. Mm -hmm. And Africa is still 70% uh, rural. So villages, villagers, and people in villages, they might not be as informed as people that are uh, um, that have done like uh, higher studies. So yes, and that's where sometimes 
uh, those people in power go to find uh, people that vote for them because when election times come, they distribute rice, they distribute oil, they distribute corns, and people just vote for them and they say, oh, you know, they gave me rice, they gave me corn, I was able to eat like for one week, who else gave me that? And, you know, so it's, and, and that's why it's, it's, it's really uh, complicated to always say those people stay in power only because they are teaching on the on the election on the election during the election poll. I mean we don't know. I mean the the start of it surely but also there's part of a lot of uneducated people in the villages that are not or that even don't care because no matter who is in power they don't really see how it can relate to them bettering of their life hmm. you mentioned uh, a lot of the folks are you know 70 percent rural a lot of the folks are mm -hmm. quite poor what are, what's the economic situation like um you know we're this is a kind of bitcoin and crypto focused podcast right yeah. a lot of folks in the in the states like to talk about uh, you know, Bitcoin as uh, you know maybe a new currency or yeah. kind of solving like hyperinflation and things like that. What what is the economic and more specifically like the the currency situation there? Oh, um, then let's focus on the on, on the French French Africa zone, uh, which has uh, two uh, monetary kind of unions. So fourteen countries share the same currency that is called the CFA franc. The CFA franc is pegged to the euro, so and it's a fixed rate. Um, and I think in this region, uh, over the last uh, 10 years, uh, fortunately, the uh, GDP growth has been uh, outstanding because in Ivory Coast, for example, it has been like 7% growth over the past 10 years. I think in Cameroon, we are at 5%. So the situation is improving. We have a rising middle class. Um, uh, in the last five years, for example, in this francophone, uh, 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 in French Africa zone, which is about 200 to 250 million people, um, uh, we have doubled the size of the middle class. So things are happening, uh, things are improving, but not as fast as it could be if we had uh, better governance, like better transparency, and better access to the global economy. And that's how it's, um, we make the transition to, to Bitcoin and the crypto economy, right? Because right now, what I see uh, is like a lot of younger people uh, 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 trying to do e-commerce, like uh, locally producing uh, uh, products from Africa. And now with the likes of DHL, they have a way to send it abroad. But how can they receive payments? Because PayPal is blocking most of African countries. So, and also you have people uh, uh, designing services like uh, coaching classes or even giving uh, uh, classes in IT or community management of everything that are based in Ivory Coast, in Cameroon or elsewhere. And they can give that to people that are abroad, but how do they get paid for their services? And you have those merchants, you have those merchants that are trying to order goods from India, from China. And whenever they want to pay their suppliers and they want to go through the banks, then there is a heavy regulation around uh, currency exchanges, around sending money outside. So it can take very long time, sometimes 14 days. It costs like an harm. And uh, that's where Bitcoin and crypto can really solve 
those uh, struggles that people are encountering now and that that are dampening uh, this potential growth we are missing so whenever people say oh we are growing at five percent seven percent a year i'm like think about how much we are leaving on the table right we could do double that so how can we do double that what could be the solution all right guys we're going to take a quick break from the show talk about two sponsors you guys have heard them on the last two episodes it's uh luca tax and exodus i wanted to re-record both of the ads though uh, just because they're kind of two, one story and one update from one of the companies. So I just wanted to fill you guys in. The first one is Luca Tax. Luca, just a, re- I mean, it's tax season right now, as some of you guys probably know. Taxes are so damn complicated that the IRS pushed back the deadline another month. So you guys, including me, could figure out our taxes. Uh, for folks in crypto, you guys know that crypto taxes can be an absolute nightmare. Fun little story, I tried having my accountant, this guy Josue, figure out how to do my taxes and it was an absolute nightmare because of the crypto, right? All of us, a lot of us at least have crypto held on a few different platforms. I've got crypto on like Exodus, a few other places and you know, you've got to deal with FIFO, you've got to deal with LIFO, there are exchanges, there are custodians, there are wallets and what Luca Tax basically uh, was able to do was, first off, super cheap, right? I had Hostway go over to uh, tax.luca.tech forward slash empire, which is my URL. I get hooked up if you guys go over there and create an account, so do that. But I had Hostway head over to Luca and it just made it super easy for him to do my taxes. So you can have your accountant plug into Luca, you can do it yourself. Um, but yeah, I highly recommend Luca if you guys are trying to do your crypto taxes this year. tax.luca.tech forward slash empire. All right, head on over. All right, a lot of you know the second partner for the show is Exodus. I've, about 20 or 30 people hit me up last time said, is Exodus legit? Who is Exodus? How do you hear about Exodus? So I want to share a little background on that story. Basically, Exodus, a lot of people don't know them. They've been around since you know, 2015. They've over 100 employees. They've raised a boatload of money, which we'll talk about in a second. And they're one of the best kept secrets in the space. Hardcore Bitcoiners, people who have been around since like 2012, 2013, love Exodus because they basically let you manage your private keys, um, which is really sought after. If, if anyone's heard of, you know, not your keys, not your crypto, Exodus allows you to basically do this. They've got super low fees when you're buying Bitcoin, You've got a built-in exchange. Uh, they let you plug into DeFi really easily. So they're an amazing wallet. When I first heard about Exodus, actually, our sales team had brought it to me and said, do you want to work with this company? I hit up Peter McCormick because I knew that they, they advertised with Pete. Pete said, yeah, they're super legit. I do a lot of my business banking with them. He basically gave his stamp of approval. I checked out the product, gorgeous UI, UX, really good security. So I'd really recommend it. They just raised $59 million in four days. Super impressive. So they're really well capitalized. And yeah, I'd recommend checking out Exodus. You can find them at exodus.com forward slash empire. All right. Let me know what you think. Just to summarize kind of the the CFA, the CFA franc, the currency, mm-hmm. right? To make sure mm-hmm. I understand that there are 14 countries that yes. were kind of colonized by France. Mm-hmm. They all use one currency called the CFA franc, which is pegged to the euro. Is that correct? Yes, definitely. Okay. Is there, um, I was reading a little bit about how some people are calling for some kind of activists call for a new currency because they say mm-hmm. that the CFA franc is kind of this hangover from the colonial period. And they yes. their argument seemed to be, if I understood it correctly, a new unified currency that would be managed by a common African central bank. Um, yeah. So you would change the pegging of the CFA franc from the euro to maybe a basket of currencies 
or you know just something else is this is this kind of western media saying this or is this actually happening on the ground oh no yes i mean on the ground you have a lot of activists a lot of even sound economists that are uh, lobbying for um, us getting out of the the cfa fund uh, as a currency and to be honest is it even a currency when you, when you don't even have like a proper central bank what is the mission of our central bank you know when you are in france you know that the mission is to kind of make sure inflation is not over the board when you are in the uk and the us come to make sure that uh, uh, the employment rates stay high enough and everything. But what is the mission of the central bank in, 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 in this region? It's only to maintain a kind of reserve to uh, the French coffers because we need to be sure that we are still fixating, like the pegging is still worth it. And I don't know of any country that managed to, to grow uh, substantially without having a handle on their monetary uh, uh, policy. Think about China, how uh, in the 1990s, 19, uh, 2000, uh, they used to be accused of uh, 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 of bit failing, you know, uh, uh, devaluing the, the, devaluating the yuan because they wanted to boost export. We, we don't have the luxury to do that. We are pegged to the euro. You, I mean, even like, I don't even see, I don't even know if there is one single country in the Eurozone that is, that is at par with one country in our zone. So they are so far ahead. How can we be pegged to that, uh, to, that, uh, to that currency? So on this part, I think that yes, definitely something needs to happen. But my concern with people saying that we should get out of it is how do we get out? What is the transition plan? We replace it by what? And people are lobbying for like this, yes, Central African Bank and everything. But I mean, it's so complicated. Even in Euro, even today, people are still uh, 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 not sure that, okay, it was such a good idea to do like Euro. It's really complicated between Germany and Greece and Portugal. How do you align sovereign interests and everything? So my thinking is that why don't we just go through like the without frontier money, without frontier currency, why don't we just adopt Bitcoin as like the African currency and, you know, and, and, and let the market decide? At least I wouldn't be worried about maybe having like a bad governance system in a central bank, having people that are unprepared, having like self-interest that matters more than the interest of the, of the population. So why don't we just leapfrog it, like we leapfrog the lifelines and move to mobile phones, why don't we leapfrog those kind of currency of the past and go to the digital uh, uh, crypto uh, uh, aspect of it? Mm. So let's let's you said um, something interesting there, which is you, you know, you leapfrogged the traditional kind of like landline system yeah. in the United yeah. States and went straight to mobile banking. Um, what, what, what does mobile banking look like? in Cameroon? What, what, what's the state of it? Who, who runs it? Who owns it? What are the yeah. platforms that are used? Is it easy? Is it hard? Yeah. So I think the first thing is very accessible. And I think that's when you start thinking about, even when we talk about crypto, how do we make sure that it goes to mainstream? Uh, what happens with mobile uh, uh, money is like, it's very accessible. You have almost like 300 
thousand agents across uh, uh, the zone. And an agent is like you, you can decide, Jason, to become an agent of a telecom company, right? In the francophone zone, you have many three to four players like Orange, which is the, the telecom company of France. You have MTN, which is South African. You have Free, you have Airtel. And what those people did is like they managed to empower agents that you can go through to do deposits and to do withdrawals. So you go to see an agent that is nearby your house, you give them the equivalent of $10, and it gets loaded on your phone, on your mobile phone. And you don't even need to, you don't need to have internet or data because it all goes through the USSD system, which is kind of a, a, a low level a, a communication system, a, 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 behind the back end of telecom companies. So those telecom companies, obviously, uh, they, they don't do the custody. They partner with banks, usually, where your money is deposited. But then the money can transition from your phone to your neighbor phone, to the merchant phone, you know. So you go to a store and you want to buy, uh, for example, some bread, and it costs like 50 cents. So you just do like a code and you send the 50 cent and it appears instantly to, uh, uh, to the merchant account. And that's it, the transaction, transaction is done. So that's how it works uh, globally. So it's really accessible. Even people having those basic feature phones that cost like $5, uh, 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 they, they can use that. Okay, so that's really interesting. So it sounds like the... You know, the money system, you know, you've got in terms of the currency, you've got a currency that's pegged to the euro. So that works pretty well. You've got a, uh, a system of mobile banking that mm -hmm. is arguably more advanced than the mobile banking in the United States, at least for a while. So what's so they, it sounds like things are going pretty well. So so what's wrong? What are what are some of the problems that you're seeing today? Oh, uh, first, so the telecom companies, basically, they own your money. I mean, you, you might feel like you own your money because it's in your mobile phone, but no, you don't. I mean, sometimes you can get blocked. They, 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 they tell you that, oh, uh, your KYC needs to be revisited. So now what can, what can you do? You have to go there. And so like the centralized approach is, I think, is a drawback that we share uh, with, uh, with uh, the West approach uh, that is uh, uh, lying on the on traditional banks. The other thing is that the technology behind is not safe at all. Like you have so many apps, it's so easy to act like the USSD platform. And then because it's really accessible, you have our grandmothers, grandfathers in the village. Sometimes they get like SMS, they don't, they are not educated enough sometimes to know that it's a fake, it's a scam, so they get scammed and, you know, people, yeah, I mean, it's not really secure, it's centralized, and the fees, uh, although I told you, like, they, we had globally, like, four players, imagine how many banks do you have in the U.S.? <laughs> And, 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 and for 300 million people, you have so many banks. And yeah, I'm telling you that in this 200 to 250 million uh, uh, population zone, you have four players uh, uh, sharing the, 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 the part. So imagine what they do. The fees are, 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 are crazy. And, and sometimes I just get so mad. But since it's like the only thing that we have, 
and we feel at, at the time i think we were thinking that we were innovating but right now we are we are seeing that we are stagnating because people thought that since it's spread out so quickly and you have millions of users joining the system but it's because of lack of a better solution right so we need to do better so for me these are like the three drawbacks like security centralization and um, and the fees I heard you, uh, I think it was on a, on a podcast or on a video interview series talking about the kind of dual sectors in Africa, which is the formal sector and the yeah. informal sector. And mm -hmm. I, I, I think I got this from you where you said the informal sector represents almost 55% of the combined African economies. And the informal sector is just the part of the economy that uh, is just cut off or partially you know, cut off from regulation and from institutions and from banks, and these might be blacksmiths or farmers or just small tradespeople. Can you, what, what does this look like? And just kind of contextualize this for someone who maybe has grown up in the United States and doesn't really understand this concept of an informal sector, except maybe yeah. marijuana or, you know, something <laughs> like that. Yeah. Um... You have many people that are uh, living day by day, right? And they do whatever they can to, to survive. And sometimes even people that are above surviving, they prefer it that way. They prefer to stay informal because they don't pay taxes and uh, nobody can really know they are worth. And you have a lot of people that because you have to compare that to like 90% of transactions that are based in cash. So this is also like a, 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 a great power behind like the informal system. So people are basically trading cash and when people are transacting in cash, I mean, what's the urge? What's the need to go formal? And that's also why a lot of the uh, figures that are uh, displayed about Africa in the likes of McKinsey reports or even the World Bank, sometimes they are misleading because how can you measure something that is not really measurable? So those informal are the merchants that are selling, the street merchants that are selling goods. Uh, you also have some companies that, are, that have employees and that are doing exceptionally well, that are importing and exporting goods, but without being registered formally. And so those past few years, because 55% uh, is actually a huge improvement. 10 years before, it was like 70%, 70 to 75% uh, informal. So uh, um, uh, countries have been trying to enact um, fiscal laws that we entice people to register. Like recently in the finance law of 2021, uh, Cameroon uh, enacted some kind of startup laws where they are encouraging people in the digital economy, the startups to register and to get uh, 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 lower taxes, uh, 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 lower uh, even uh, contributions to uh, social and um, and business taxes to their employees they are registering. So they are trying to make people go more formal, expecting that, okay, if we do that, maybe five years from now, 10 years from now, we're gonna decrease a little bit more this informal. So yeah. I really think that uh, if, you, if you have to remember one thing is that we used to, people used to think that informal system in Africa was directly linked to poverty and people that live below uh, the $2 per day. But what I'm seeing on the ground is that you have a lot of people in the informal system that are really well off. 
and that are doing really great for themselves. Um, in the North region of Cameroon, for example, you have people that are basically keeping billions under their mattresses, or what they do, they buy cattle. So some people count their wealth in cattle. So he wants to sit in his house and say, oh, I have 2,000 pigs, I have 3,000 uh, 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 beef, so this is my fortune, you know. So this is how, this is how he keeps his money in, in cattle, in sheep, in pigs, in everything. And whenever he needs some money, he, he sells some because people always need to eat. So it's actually a great reserve, a great reserve of value in his mind, you know, so. <laughs> wow. So people are people are not putting their money in a bank. They're they're yeah. keeping hundreds of millions under under a mattress or yes. they're buying they're they're buying pigs and and yes. And, yes. and cows and things like yes. that as yeah. at store of value. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. Fascinating. Do you think that this makes it will make it easier to explain the value of something like Bitcoin to these folks or or harder because they're so not used to the digital world. Yeah. So I think if you were to explain it the way we explain it in the West, you will go nowhere. But to explain it, you have to use like the, the cow and the pigs and everything. You really have to think from metaphor that use those things that they know of. And that's also why um, among all the application I see uh, that that will make uh, uh, this uh, uh, crypto adoption go mainstream in Africa is really how we can make uh, the combination of physical asset to digital asset. I think it will make people the transition easier, right? If you could tell them that, okay, this is your cow, maybe let's, let's imagine you buy a cow when it's like uh, 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 six months old, right? And you assign a token to this cow. But as this cow grow older and this cow it appreciates in value, so your token also appreciates in value. And when you resell it, you can burn the token and you keep the profit and then you have an asset that is appreciating in value and that is linked to a physical asset. Actually, I'm telling you that, but it's a real project that a friend of, a friend of and, and, and I are brainstorming about. How do, we, how do we make this transition easier so that people go from cow to digital token and from digital token to Bitcoin, those people. But then you have people that live in the cities, in the urban areas, the younger generation, the digital savvy, and this population is also increasing. They might represent maybe 20%, 30% of people, but still it's worth it, right? Because even in the US where you don't have those informal, formal, you don't have those cows, how many people own Bitcoin? I think less than 2% or maybe even 5% at the maximum. So do you, you don't need 100% to say that it's going somewhere. So first, if we focus on those people in urban areas, we can get to the level that we have in the US or in Europe. And for those people that are more remote to the digital economy, let's make the bridge by uh, 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 mixing what they know and what we are aspiring them to know. Hmm. Very interesting. Let's get into crypto in a sec. But first, I want to talk about your background, Nelly, um, and then we'll start talking about uh, Ijara and what you're building. So can you just yes. give folks an overview of your you were born in Cameroon, you moved yeah. to France, became chief data officer at this big corporate <laughs> gambling company? What what what's your background? Take us back to your childhood in Cameroon. 
Yeah. Uh, so I was born to uh, a family. I, I, I'm the oldest. I'm the eldest of my family. We are, we are five girls. Um, and, uh, and I think since I was uh, very little, I loved mathematics. I mean, I was really, really into numbers. I mean, as far as I can get back. I think my first venture I launched was like in sixth grade. I was selling popcorn, popcorn, like flavor popcorn at school. And, um, and it was during the time, like during the 1990s, in Cameroon, you had a lot of troubles. I think across uh, this uh, West and Central Africa zone, that's where people started uh, asking for more democracy. They asked for more uh, political parties rather than one single party that we had since the independence. So it was a troubled time, and my parents had a little bit hard time getting by. So I had this crazy idea. What if I could contribute to the house, to uh, uh, how we can, uh, we can afford to my parents can afford to put some food on the table by selling stuff at school. And I started selling some flavored popcorn and it was pretty successful, you know, like it was 10 cents a pack. And then I grew, I had resellers, I had, and I had a lot of combination and uh, six months afterwards, because my results in school were dropping since I was more interested in the business, my parents made me stop. So this was like, I was, I think, 10 years old at the time. Uh, one event also that really uh, marked my childhood, and that is also something that uh, influenced me a lot when I launched Ijaha, was what happened, the devaluation of CFP franc in January 1994. And for me, it's like a trauma because it was basically the first time I saw my dad crying. Because imagine like uh, on the 10th of January, the savings of my parents were like X, and on the 11th of January, 1994, it was half of X. So yes. wait, so what, what, ha that's a, that's a fascinating story. What happened yes. on, I, what did you say? January, 1994, what, why did yes. the currency get cut in half? So, uh, I think, um, like, uh, from the 1980 to 1990, uh, the, the, the countries, the 14 countries didn't uh, grow a lot, like their economies were stagnating and people like French people, uh, 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 because they, they were the ones sitting and they're still the ones sitting on the central banks of those uh, of, of those uh, of this region decided that, OK, let's boost those economies by making the goods they produce. Uh, 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 lesser, like in price, and they were saying that, okay, by pegging, because at the time it was pegged to the French franc, by pegging the CFA franc to the French franc as it was, it was pegging it to a really higher uh, uh, economy. So we need to diminish it so that they could be more competitive on the market and make sure that we discourage them to import goods and encourage them to export. So that was the, the official justification of the devaluation. But obviously, when you do that, you haven't prepared the economy to that. You haven't developed any industries. I mean, yes, it's good to, to, to be like, to have a wishful thinking that naturally people like we devalue and then we're going to export more, import less. But we don't even know how to produce like a, a, a single like a cotton swap. So, so, so how are we going to manage? How are we going to get by? So the end result was like the purchasing power of 
the people locally diminished drastically. And the government, because they had also less money, they stopped paying public servants. Uh, all the price of imported goods were went through the roof. And at the time, I don't know the exact number, but I think it was almost close to like 90% of imported goods. So those were kind of the, it was really, really, really hard years to, 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 to get by. Hmm. Your parents are doing everything right. And the government with just a flip of a switch cuts the value exactly. of the currency in half. Well, exactly. Exactly. So you, so these are two kind of, you know, you're selling popcorn, one uh, formidable <laughs> uh, experience. And, uh, and then you see the value of your parents' wealth get cut in half. So yeah. you graduate from college and then. Exactly. From high school, I graduated from high school in, uh, in Cameroon. And then I left to do my undergraduate studies in France in uh, computer science engineering. Uh, and from the moment I set foot in France, you have to uh, to get to, to take in. I mean, to keep in mind that Africa is in Africa we live in community, right? So even if I, I left Cameroon and because I was um, uh, very successful at school, I had a full scholarship. So, but I I still managed to find like a small job, a cashier at a retail store because I wanted to send money back to my community. Because the way I was raised, there is no individual success. Your success is measured at the success of your community. I cannot be happy if I know that at home, uh, my cousin, my parents, my best friend are not eating enough. So since my scholarship was only covering my needs, I needed to find additional source of revenues to cover the needs of people back home. So since I'm 17 years old, every single month I've always assigned some money back to my community. So when I arrived in France and I started doing and I started doing that, this was like the first trigger to Ijara that we're gonna come by later. The remittance. I mean, come on. You know, sometimes I will get like only $100 to send back home and I will have to pay like $12, $13. I mean, $12 at the time was like my food allocation for a week. So sometimes I just had to eat like pasta and ketchup for like a full week because I really wanted to send back money home and I knew it was an emergency. Someone needed to, to get a, a medical treatment to, 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 to buy some drugs. And I would have felt like selfish to just like eat meat and eat like properly if they were undergoing those hurdles. And that's also where I had my second revolt. I'm like, this financial system is not working for us. It's like working for most of us. It's like working for a part of humanity, but a huge part of the world is left. Like first you do everything. Your wife is not protected and then you work and then you, you work hard and then you want to send money and then 15, 30%, 12% gets taken by, a, by, only a comp, by one company, it was Western Union uh, at the time. So, yeah. So then I graduated like mm. in computer science and I started working as such. But I think from the moment I started working as an engineer in computer science, I was doing some project and I was like, okay, who the heck is making decisions about what project should get done? Like, I don't think like this is really smart. This project is smart. And then I started investigating and I realized that, oh, it's good to be 
a technical person, but it's even better to have like business knowledge, like business acumen, because then you can get to the, uh, 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 to the room where decisions are taken. And then having this technical background, you can always make sure that you tie your technology expertise to creating the maximum value on the business perspective. And that's why I decided to do an MBA, which I did in London Business School in London and HEC in Paris. And after my MBA adventure into investment banking, yeah, in 2007. I mean, I, 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 I think I checked all the boxes, right? So I'm like, <laughs> you made it. You something, made it. yes, 26 something. I'm in London, I'm in the city. I'm like, whoa. I think the, the first salary I got was like maybe three times what I got prior to my MBA. And I was like, how do you spend this, 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 this amount of money? The second month I was there, I was like, I'm not liking the person I'm becoming because, you know, the ethics, the ethics were really, really, really not aligned with my values. Um, I was like, if I stay in that industry for like two more years, I'm not going to recognize myself. I'm not going to happy. I'm not going to be happy with what I see in the mirror. Um, and then the crisis happened, right? And somehow I felt responsible, but how could I be responsible? I was just like a junior associate. I had nothing to do, but I could see what was at play because six months before the crisis, it like a climax. I could see all the liquidity pouring in the market. I could see those companies, like the fake due diligence we were making, the high leverage we were uh, allowing those companies to get by. Like, this is not working. And, you know, in 2008, I decided, okay, I don't want to do banking anymore. And that's when I venture into uh, the more corporate world and finding a role that combined like this uh, business, this business uh, aspect that I like so much with quant my quantitative skills. And I started as a as a pricing consultant, so using statistical models, uh, using uh, 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 in time like AI and machine learning to access what is the willingness to pay of the customer, like what is the proper price for the goods at the proper location. So I did that for quite some time. And I think uh, in 2008, I managed to have my first foot at the table where decisions were taken. I was in executive committee of a big uh, retail company in France. And it was really tough <laughs> because you are the youngest, you are a woman and you are a black African woman in France. I mean, believe me, I heard like so many despicable things getting said, you know, and I felt like, and I think since that moment and for the for the, 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 the 10 years I did in like uh, co executive committees in, in, in France, I always felt like I was only there because they couldn't find a white guy that has the expertise and the dedication and that, that I had like, because the moment they could find like this person, they would just drop me off. And and this stayed in my mind, despite the fact that I had great managers, I had great leaders earlier in my career. I mean, they were not the one giving me that feedback, but around me, that was kind of the feedback the environment was giving me. 
So for the so from that moment and the last 10 years, as you mentioned, until the chief data officer role in Backlick, so I've been participating in uh, in everything across data uh, innovation, and that's when in 2016 I uh, I fell off my chair because I read about this thing called Bitcoin, and I was like, whoa. This is the answer that got sent to me <laughs> about like <laughs> protecting your wealth, making sure you don't pay FT fees when you give back to your community and so much more. Hmm, that's amazing. So you had just to kind of recap that you worked in investment bank, you went to, you got your MBA, you worked in investment banking. 2008, 2009 financial crisis happens. You move over to the corporate world and over the last you know decade or so, you built yourself mm -hmm. up to, if if I'm right here, you were the chief data officer eventually yes. of this of yes. this pretty large gambling company. What yes. was that like? Oh, I mean, it was it was really fun, and I think I, I have to tell you how it happened. So, prior to me joining a uh, 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 click, which is like the, the the leader in France, in Portugal, in in gambling, I I was uh, pricing a director in uh, in retail. And when I decided to change, uh, 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 to change roles, I could move to another retail company and still be like a pricing director, but with a larger uh, portfolio. Or rather, I could take the risk and then completely change uh, uh, the course of my career. And what I uh, identify about myself is that the fear I have of stagnating, of not growing, always overwhelms the fear of uncertainty. So when I was given the choice between continuing down the path that I knew I could do, I could succeed, and starting this whole, in this gambling company, I knew nothing about gambling. I was the first hire in the data department. I had no playbook I could rely upon to build my hole. So I had just to jump off the plane and try to find a parachute down the line. But then I decided to do that and I had to move my family across from Paris to Bordeaux. Like my husband decided like he had to leave his job, you know, like look at all the stress I put on my family, but this is how I am. I mean, I'm a risk, I'm a risk taker and I love being like at the helm of innovation and everything. So I decided to go for that role. And in the three years that I stayed there, I increased the department from one person myself. So when I was one person, I was doing everything. So I was the one strategizing. I was the one doing the consulting. I was the one programming in Python, in R. I was the one doing the slide. I was the one doing everything. And in three years after that, we had I had like 40 people uh, 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 department, wow. and it was working across the companies, providing values for the marketing, for the trading, for the finance, and everything. Yeah. Wow. So, Nelly, you you kind of you know when you were 17, you went to Europe and to pursue this engineering degree, and you yeah. Europe. That was like the land of hope and promises and meritocracy mm -hmm. where a 17 year old African girl could dream of conquering mm -hmm. the world. And, and you kind of did yeah. that, right? You got your yes. MBA and in investment banking yeah. and, and, and built yourself up to be this big kind of corporate tech executive. Yeah. Why leave behind 20 years of a successful career path I in know. Europe to move back to Africa? 
I know, um, I'm going to be totally honest with you. <laughs> so when you are 17 and you think of conquering the world, you have a picture in your imagination that you're going to be sitting in a room with people that are so brilliant, that are so smart. They will uplift you. They will make you challenge yourself. And then when you get there, it kind of feels empty because the most of the people that succeed over there are not the smartest that you can have. Those are the people that were playing more politics. Those are the people that are more brushed up on the outside, but sometimes the inside is very ugly. Those are the people that don't inspire you. And then you find that you rely on side project. And at the time it was blockchain and the likes of that to kind of energize you. So I was at the point where I was using a lot of energy at work, but I felt like it was depleting my energy, my like enthusiasm. Whereas when I was working on the side project, like democratizing blockchain knowledge across Cameroon, across Africa, it was filling me up with a lot of energy. And then at some point I stopped and I asked myself, one, do you know how long you're gonna live? And I was like, I don't know, I could die tomorrow. So if I were to die tomorrow, would I feel like I have succeeded in my life? What is my definition of success? Of success? And it was like, oh, I measure my success by how much positively I impacted the people's lives. So every single day I need to say, oh, I met this person, I did that, I did this, I did that, and this changed the life for the better. And I couldn't see that happening anymore in the corporate world. And the second thing was, how much do I need to, how much do I need, like in terms of money to have, to make a living, right? Do I need to earn like five figures, six figures? Do I really need that? And I'm like, I'm a really simple person, right? I like to eat my fish uh, uh, done on charcoal. You know, I don't really like caviar. I don't really like like fancy stuff. So I don't need a lot to, 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 to live and to, and to be happy, to be content with my life. So why do I need to earn all that money and be that miserable over there where I can do something I love and, you know, have my simple life? So that's how I kind of make the jump. Wow. All right, let's talk about Ijara. What is Ijara? So um, Ijara is, um, so Ijara's first vision, Ijara's mission is to uh, democratize access to sound financial products for people in Francophone Africa and their diasporas. It's really important, like every single word is important in these in sentences. Democratizing, so mainstream adoption, financial products, meaning like all the range, like I started with wealth protection, wealth management, but in time I hope to be to to dive into more product like DeFi, open up the lending, the lending areas and everything, and then people in Francophone Africa and the diaspora, meaning people inside those countries and their families that live outside, so that we can have a single platform where you can find the diaspora. You can find the people in the urban areas in Francophone Africa and the people in the villages. Imagine a platform when you can have those three populations that never really mix and that never meet in a single platform. How you can power that to do 
borrowing, lending, and to kind of finance and power up the economy with the people that stand the most to benefit from those increased economy. So that's my idea, my concept of Ijaha, like in the longer term. What, what is Ijaha right now? It's really like a non-custodial wallet that allow people in Francophone Africa to store uh, uh, Bitcoin, Ethereum, Tezos, but also to buy using mobile money, their local fiat currency. And in the coming weeks, we are also adding uh, other like foreign currencies like Euro, Canada, the, uh, dollars, because we aspire really to have this diaspora and the people locally. When I've, when I've looked at uh, startups in places like Cameroon and, and Senegal and the, you know, Central Africa and Western Africa, there's a lot of um, remittances is, yes. a, is a big focus, right? And, and yeah. there are less... There are a lot of companies focused on the movement of money, less companies yeah. focused on investing your money. Why That's did true. you decide to pick this problem of investing and growing wealth instead of sending money back and forth? So, you know, so it goes back to 1994. Think about the trauma I had. My parents saving their wealth, thinking that those, these, those savings were going to finance the education of their that i mean of their their children when they grew up it was a way for them to store the value and then no it wasn't such a great way for them to store and to protect their wealth so this trauma i think is the one that make me so passionate about the investing case and i had so many investors telling me why are you doing it the hard way just go into remittance i mean it's like an easy sell and i'm like i'm not passionate about it to be honest so I don't feel like doing something I could not die for, you know, like if I had to take 50 years to build that investing company, I'm going to take those 50 years. That I'm sure. I had the roadmap for 50 years laid down in my head. I don't have that roadmap for remittance, to be honest. So, and I also think that when people sometimes look at creating company, they look at low hanging fruit. Obviously, remittance is an easy sell, like I said. But for me, I look at the macroeconomics, the things that are really changing on, on, on that line. So two things. I told you that the middle class has grown, like has doubled over the past kind of 10 years. The middle class is supposed to double in the next five years. And these middle class people, if you are a middle class in Europe or in the US, you have like a disposable income that is growing. You have more money that you can save. So, yes, we're going to put a lot of it in kind of safe uh, 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 assets. Like, you're going to buy some land, you're going to invest in real estate. But then you also want to maybe venture like 1% to 5% of this disposable income into more dynamic assets. So that's why I feel like, why not propose them like investment in like metals, in like stocks, U.S. securities, in like cryptos, because, you know, those are only asset classes and it also teaches them how to invest their money and make their ROI uh, more significant. The second reason is that if you look, we were talking about social media, for example. So people in Africa, they all know about Facebook, Google, YouTube, and they use that a lot. So I'm just telling them, instead of being only consumers, be shareholders. Guys, you know, you are the one contributing to the value of those companies. So also be shareholders. Let's stop this mentality of only consuming. And my hope is that by making this shift, 
maybe by investing, maybe they might make also the shift when it comes to them consuming other products. They're going to ask themselves, oh, what if I was part of the people producing this thing I'm consuming daily instead of only, you know, consuming it? So I also hope that this could be like a trigger, like a shift in a paradigm, like a mentality that people uh, uh, had entertained like their whole life. And the last thing, the last reason I will, uh, I will make the case for this investing is that I see a lot of scams going on around investing, you know. A lot of companies are making, a lot of um, uh, chiefs are making fortunes by telling people, oh, uh, 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 give me your money and I'm gonna double it every single month and everything. And it happens because people are not educated well about investing. It happens because, you know, uh, uh, we think that people don't want that, but they are human beings. I mean, every human being aspires to grow their wealth. I think it's like a basic human need. So if we start considering like them, like the middle class in Africa, the same as the middle class in Europe, in, in, in the United States, then we're gonna see that they aspire to the same thing. They are the same human beings and that aspire to the same thing, the, the same way as middle class in Europe, middle class in the US and in China. So if you think that people are valuing investing uh, companies, invest, uh, in, like, in investing strategies, uh, uh, asset classes in those areas, it's the same here. I mean, no, no differences at all. So, hmm. How do people currently buy and sell? I know Ijar is much more than just a crypto platform, right? Eventually yes. you'll have the ability to give people access to things like uh, you know, commodities, tokenized yes. assets, right? So exactly. someone in, you know, Central Africa or Western Africa can mm -hmm. buy something like the S&P 500 or Apple and things like that. Exactly. Let, in terms of something like Bitcoin, um, how does how does someone in Cameroon buy Bitcoin right now? There's no there's no Coinbase. There's no Gemini, right? How do they do it right now? No. Oh, my goodness. Uh, right now, it's only P2P. Uh, and I'm telling you, the largest P2P platform is WhatsApp. 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 So people are just like creating WhatsApp groups and they are uh, exchanging. So every single, like every single minute, people are, some people are advertising, oh, I'm selling like uh, uh, $100 worth of Bitcoin and this is my selling price. Oh, I'm, I, I want to buy like $50 worth of Bitcoin. And you have some WhatsApp groups that are very evolved, to be honest. I was so surprised. You have some of them that have even higher KYC requirements than any single bank at important of the continent. Like they literally ask you to have other people in the WhatsApp group to walk them through your house so they can take even picture of your of, 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 of the street that you live in so that they can make sure that you do not scam other people in the group. So oh. WhatsApp group. Telegram, Telegram. So that's how people uh, are doing it. People, wow, that's that's amazing. Nelly, let's talk about just being a founder um, yeah. for a second. What is the toughest decision that you're having to make right now, or the toughest thing that you're dealing with right now? Oh, um, I think the the toughest decision uh, I had to make was I think two months ago. It was two months and a half ago. Um, I started uh, uh, raising my seed, and I think after six weeks, I decided to stop uh, because it was taking me a lot of time, a lot of focus 
from what I wanted to focus on, the products, my consumers. And it was filling me with bad energy, like having all those... Uh, I mean, it's not the rejection that hurts, it's like the condescending rejection, the lack of respect that you, that, you, that you feel when you are a founder in Africa as a woman, as a black person. You know, I'm accumulating so many handicaps. I don't even know like, how I got crazy enough to, to decide to be a founder. So after six weeks, I was like, okay, let's just cut it. You know, I don't, I, I don't want to, to, to deal with that crap anymore. Let's find a way to, to, to bootstrap this company and make sure I deliver no matter what. And let's make my customers my first investors. Because if I focus on them, if I manage to have a lot of traction, I can break even. So this was kind of the, the toughest decision I, 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 I took like uh, two months ago. And to be honest, you know, I'm like, I'm pissed with it. So yeah, this was kind of really, really crazy times. Especially yeah. like when, when you when you need to keep a happy face, when you need to encourage the team to tell them, oh, don't worry, the future is bright for us. We are getting there. Our goal is to eat like at least $1 million transaction per month, but we're going to get there. And I'm like, no, you don't know how you're going to get there. I'm like, no, 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm going to find a solution. <laughs> and, 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 and my motto is always like, if there's a single person in the world that has found a solution, it means it's fundable. So I'm going to found one. I'm gonna wrap this interview up with um, with one question here, and then and then you can ask me one question. Um, what is one thing that you just want to share with folks, maybe in the states or people who haven't been to Central Africa or West Africa? Just what is one thing that you want to share with them about what it's like to build a startup there, or you know, just what life is like? And obviously, yes, when you start a company in the US or in France, you have all the you have the playbook already written, right? So you just care about uh, developing your product, maybe finding some seed money, maybe you know, maybe hiring some talent. In Africa you have to worry about the infrastructure. So when I started I'm like, okay, how can I make sure that I'm my, my team and I can keep working despite regular electricity shortages. So I have to figure out, should I buy a generator? Should I buy, should I buy a solar panel? Uh, what is the business case? One costs higher than the other. How can I make sure? And then I have to worry about water supply. Like sometimes also the water gets cut off. So should I dig a well? Should I, I mean, what should I choose? And then for the internet, then I had to subscribe like to basically like the four providers because every time I have to switch among them because it's like very poor, it's like very it's unstable. So this is all the hurdles you have to kind of tackle before even getting into what's even my idea to be honest, like what, what did I even build? Because after building the, my well, my generator, after like subscribing to four or five, I asked me how can I do it? But I think those make founders in that zone more resilient. To be honest, I will say that uh, to people listening to us, whenever you meet an African founder, despite what you will think of the idea, what you will think of the potential behind, have a lot of respect to the fact that those people, despite those hurdles, still manage to get to have some hope. And I wouldn't even say that to myself because for me, I, you know, I'm privileged. 
to be honest, I come from the diaspora. I have some saving aside. I've known better. I have, you know. But when I see the founders that have that were born, raised, and that stayed there their whole life and still manage to find something, I'm like, wow, this is the power of humanity. I mean, like talent is distributed. It's like madness. So that's what I would want to to to, to tell people listening to us. Amazing. Now you can ask uh, me one question to to wrap this up if you'd like. So Jason, I would I would I would love 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 to know, like, what do you get doing that podcast? Like, why do you do why do you do that? And I I've seen that you already done like some couple of episodes. So what do you get from that? And is it like aligned with what you were expecting to get from that? Uh, it, it, so what I get from it is I do this podcast pretty selfishly because there's, there are stories that I wanted to hear that I wasn't getting anywhere else. And I think in the crypto space, we tend to focus a lot on the technology and we also focus a lot on the macroeconomic environment. And we focus a lot on things like scaling and, um, just, you know, the, the applications that are get, getting built on top of it and the infrastructure right what we never focus on are the stories of the people building these things right it you, there are companies today raising hundreds of millions of dollars down to you know small founders like yourself who are just getting started yeah. and are going to be yeah. raising hundreds of millions of dollars in a few years right and so those are really yeah fingers crossed so those those are the stories that i wanted to hear and that i i wasn't hearing anywhere else and so I've done a few episodes already, like you said, and yeah, it's, yeah. it's, it's even better than I expected, right? Because people wow. are pretty open about sharing kind of the trials and tribulations of, of building this stuff yeah. because as a, as a fellow founder, I mean, this, this stuff isn't easy. So I've, I've been through yes, it and so. I, I, I know. So it's, um, yeah, I've, I've been loving it so far and I appreciate you coming on, Nelly. Perfect. Thank you so much for having me. Of course. Nelly, where can folks find more about you? Uh, I know you're on Twitter. Uh, you know, is, do you guys have a website yet? Where, where can people find more about you? Oh, um, so yes, uh, Twitter, obviously. Uh, my email address is also very simple. It's Nelly at ijara.io. Um, and I launched, and this is so funny, I launched like a YouTube channel which is just called Nelly Chateau Job, where I post like five minutes video in French about crypto, about explaining what is Bitcoin, what is a smart contract. And so this is also how you can, you can comment, you can subscribe to encourage me, you know, because I think when you want to kind of um, transform a trend, to a movement, and I got inspired by the likes of uh, Martin Luther King and all this kind. You have to go where the mass is. You cannot just say, oh, I'm just technical, I'm just geek, I'm going to sit, like, talk to the Minister of Finance in Cameroon, telecommunication to the government, to the big companies. But those are not the people I need to convince. I need to talk to the little folks. And where are they? On YouTube. So, yeah. yeah. So, YouTube, Twitter. And then Nelly at ijara.io. Amazing. Nelly, you have an incredible story. 
we it is impossible to hear your story and not be rooting for you. So I appreciate you coming on, and I hope everybody enjoyed this. And just yeah, we're 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 rooting for you. So uh, we'll have to do a follow up episode in a year or so to see where things are at. Perfect. Thank you so much, and thank you to Maytime and Cookie. Those are my best supporters. Thank you so much. Amazing. All right. Thanks, Nelly. Have a good one. Bye bye. That was Nelly Chatwe Diop, the CEO of Ijara. If you're anything like me, you were unbelievably impressed by her story. She uh, is not as well known in the space yet, but I'm, I'm calling the shot. I think she will uh, be a huge founder and a huge uh, build something that's uh, really impactful. So uh, subscribe to the podcast, head over to our website. If you enjoyed this content, subscribe to our newsletter. It's just blockworks.co forward slash newsletter. And I will see you on a, another episode of Empire next week. Talk to you soon.